where we're going, we don't need roads. Carpe diem, seize the day, boys. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Good morning, Vietnam! I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! They call it a royale with cheese. I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Shaken, not stirred. They called me Mr. Tibbs. I'll have what she's having. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You make me want to be a better man. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Go ahead. Make my day. You can't handle the truth. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. May the force be with you. To infinity and beyond. They're here. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Yes, we are, because this is the greatest movie of all time podcast. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I am your host, Tom Duncan. I'm Dana Duncan. And and tonight we are joined by special guest and uh, previous hater of this movie, Sarah Duncan. Hello. So uh, tonight we're going to be reviewing uh, Inglorious Bastards from 2009, the Quentin Tarantino film uh, starring Brad Pitt, Melanie Laurent, uh, Christophe Waltz, and Diane Kruger. Uh, among several others. Um, Just to give you the background, um, the film synopsis, it is the first year of Germany's occupation of France. Allied officer Lieutenant Aldo Rain, played by Brad Pitt, assembles a team of Jewish soldiers to commit violent acts of retribution against the so-called Nazis, including the taking of their scalps. He and his men join forces with Bridget von Hammersmark, played by Diane Kruger, a German actress and undercover agent to bring down the leaders of the third. Their fates converge with their theater owner Shoshana Dreyfus, played by Melanie Laurent, who seeks to avenge the Nazis' execution of her family. Uh, So I do remember seeing this the year that it came out, um, but uh, there was quite a few things that, um, even in revisiting it, I had not remembered, um, and uh, that I had some different impressions, but... Uh, Dana, why don't you go ahead and, um, you know, what what is your impression of the film? Well, first off, I was when I first watched the film, I didn't know what to expect. And I've always been a hater of alternative history. Um, so it just bothered me. And the way the movie ended, I think, just irritated me back then. So watching it again, I was much more receptive to it this time around i enjoyed it much more there was not a lot of the film that i remembered um for that very reason of why i just kind of blew off the ending um but having watched it again i was just mesmerized by how really good christoph waltz was in this film um he made the film 
Um, and I, I really think that uh, there's no question he deserved the Best Supporting Actor uh, Academy Award for this, for that very reason. He played it so subtly and so well that he seemed pleasant and nice and yet had a certain quality that was just almost demonic in his presentation. Um, you could just see that um, he was almost a sociopath in how he treated uh, the situations. So I thought it was a very well done movie now that I look back on it and really enjoyed watching it more the second time than I did the first. I would agree that um, kind of watching it again, I did tend to enjoy it a little bit more, but I bring to it a little bit more of a kind of hindsight uh, to a certain degree um, that, uh, you know, this is now at least the third. I have not seen Hateful Eight, but um, of the four Tarantino films that he's had, this, then he did uh, Django Unchained a few years later, um, went on to Hateful Eight, and now just recently, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's kind of had this edge of um, giving power to uh, maligned figures of history and letting them right the wrongs that he sees um, as kind of uh, an opportunity. Um, he obviously did that with uh, Once Upon a Time this last year and um, giving basically the comeuppance of a slave against a slave owner in Django Unchained. Um I don't know. I tended to um, come around on this even a little bit more than I had the first time. I uh, Just first impressions. This is much funnier than I remembered it being. I mean, I remembered it being kind of gory and like every other Tarantino film, just kind of uh, bold action and um, violence almost for the sake of violence. But it's um, so unnervingly funny sometimes in its presentation. Uh, it did catch me a little off guard there. Um, but uh, I'll just kick it over. So, Sarah, what were your impressions? Well, I'm going to start off by saying that I have always hated Tarantino. As a director, I have never really truly enjoyed anything he's done. I find it so absurdly over the top half the time that it's unmanageable to sometimes even get through the books or uh, the movies. Sorry. And so when I first watched this movie, I was on an airplane back in 2010 and I made it about halfway through before I just had to completely stop because it was so over the top and it's violence in, you know, the fact that they're depicting the entire scalp being taken off of these soldiers it just got to be so much because it is not just violence for the, you know, perhaps the sake of violence. It is just that. It's so over the top that it is almost comical in this way of looking at it. And I think when I came back around to it, um, having, you know, seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and kind of gone as far as seeing, you know, how over the top that is, I knew much more what to expect. And so I enjoyed the movie, actually, much more than I had previously. And getting all the way to the ending and seeing, you know, the alternate route that the, this history kind of took, I did enjoy it. And I think Tarantino did a masterful job with directing everybody from the camera crew to the actors. I mean, Brad Pitt. I have yet to see him do any historical dramatic film that I haven't 
actually enjoyed. I loved him in Fury. Um, and I just think that the piece itself was very well done. So, you know, just other things that um, uh, to take uh, from some of this. Um, I thought some of the score was masterful. Um, you know, there were certain elements that kind of made every uh, chapter, and I think there are five of them in here, um, seem very different. The first chapter is kind of given this Western-like feel because of how um, it's presented and filmed and um, how everything goes. The second one had kind of more of um, a kind of heist feel. Um, and so different elements play different roles throughout this movie. The one area I'd like to just point to where it kind of took me out of it. Yeah, you got a comment. Go ahead. Well, I, I did some research, and uh, actually, this is a remake of a 1978—not well, a remake, but a partial remake of a of a 1978 uh, Italian film. And Tarantino purposefully meant to make this seem like the spaghetti westerns of Clint Eastwood days, and that's the way he wrote it and the way he filmed it was to have that level of follow-up which is why even the scene in the uh basement of the uh uh tavern or the basement tavern they're talking about a mexican standoff that's a homage to uh to uh, uh the good the bad and the ugly i mean you know that that did come out in a lot of different elements of the film i just the one thing I'll say is, is it didn't seem to have the same level of consistency through the whole thing. And doing that David Bowie song to introduce the last chapter kind of just took me out of the film slightly. You know, for as good as the score was up until that point and kind of creating the atmosphere, um, that was just one point I, I went to. Yeah. So um, that being said, um, other than Brad Pitt, um, there are not a ton of big name actors that if you just asked somebody and we can refer to our resident expert, um, Chris Duncan, who happens to be about the most average moviegoer of all time, uh, as to if she's heard of almost any of the people in these, in this movie other than Brad Pitt. And I would guess that she maybe might've heard of one or two of them and she might know their faces. Um, well, I'm thinking more of, she knows Diane Cruz from uh, National Treasure, but um, or even yeah, Melanie that's... Laurent from um, uh, oh, what was that uh, magician? Now you see me, uh, the original wow. one. So, I doubt she would and... recognize the name of either of them, to be honest. Michael Fassbender, because I don't. Oh yeah, I suppose Michael Fassbender's become much bigger um, as uh, time has gone on, but, but you know, but even he was you... kind of a minor role in this. Yeah, Michael but... Myers was a surprise sight too. Yeah. Okay. No, 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 no. It's not Michael Myers. Michael Myers kills people with a hockey mask on. <laughs> Mike Myers is Shrek and frickin' Austin Powers. I'm sorry. Yes. I didn't even recognize him. Okay. But then again, he was also the studio executive in Bohemian Rhapsody, and most people didn't realize that. He was? It, see, there's my point. <laughs> yes, All right, he did so, that because okay. of the whole thing with Garth and... Uh, um, uh, Wayne's World playing Bohemian Rhapsody in the movie. That's right, why that's they. A, that's a small aside, but anyway, um, 
you know, I do say that uh, I love some of these ensemble casts where you get a lot of these smaller and Tarantino more than anybody um, else recently tends to have this um, flair for uh, getting a lot of people to do smaller parts or doing a lot of uh, big names. I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had just about everybody in it um, that you could possibly think of. So, um, you know, that being um, said, uh, you know, David Brule's in this. Um, some people might know him as uh, um, the villain from Captain America Civil War. Um, and, you know, I just I enjoyed the fact of, oh, yeah, this guy's in it and this guy's in it. And, oh, OK, yeah, she's in it, too. OK. So um, with that being said, I frankly, uh, I'll just jump kind of uh, right to it because we've um, kind of bounced around it. But um, if we start off with best performance, I think it by far has to be Christoph Waltz. I mean, frankly, he makes the movie. He jumps out from every scene Mm -hmm. that he's in. Um, The way he's just menacing and you know that he can kind of turn it on a dime um, was just such a layered character from scene one to scene f- uh, to the last scene. And almost everything about this movie had or had to do with him um, in some way, shape or form. And, um, you know, how he didn't garner a best actor nomination. I know that sometimes this is politics and gaming it, but uh, he definitely deserved whatever he was nominated for. Well, and the interesting thing is, is first of all, the original casting for Glorious Bastards for that part was supposed to be um, uh, uh, why am I drawing an absolute blank? I apologize. Um, Can I help you out at all? Leonardo DiCaprio. And he backed out. And then they cast, they found Waltz to do this. And then Fassbender came in to read for the part, and he asked to read for that part. And Tarantino said, nah, nah, you can't even read for it. We've got the guy, the perfect guy. And so, you know, Waltz did this, and he was just, the scene, for example, of how he's so cutesy and so almost fun-loving, you know, as he puts the shoe on her foot, and then leaps at her and strangles her to death in yeah. a moment. I mean, just going from being cutesy to rage. Um, by the way, that was not Waltz who was strangling uh, Diane Kruger. That was Tarantino. And he actually uh, got her to agree. He strangled her until she passed out. Wow. So as, so as to make it Bring look in the good. extra research tonight. Oh, yeah. Cool. Well, I particularly enjoyed him in the scene where um, they are ordering the strudel in the restaurant. Because in that scene, knowing the historical context and the background of, you know, the different places in Austria of the raids and that kind of thing. I got so much more like menacing and fear from his character in that point than any other time in the movie almost because he just exudes control and power to an aspect that 
like most people in today's world would not necessarily understand. And he embodies kind of, you know, what we would all assume these um, high ranking officials would be. And so I think that, you know, to bring that out in such a, you know, low standing character or that's not what I mean. Um, such an unusual like play for, you know, um, opposite goals of somebody that's throughout history been seen as like this big bad guy is to show us, you know, that. What's your point? I personally. Okay. You more, haven't gotten to your point. All right. I personally got more fear and for, more menace from that scene than any other point in the film is it showed me more about what his character could do and what that his character meant for the film. All right. Since you're the special guest, I'm going to just make this clear. We usually do this entire podcast in one take. So I'm not really cutting things, but you made about 45 seconds to get to your point. So just, you know, since this is an hour long podcast anyway. um, So since he, we were all in agreement on best performance, can I just, I just make get, one comment? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Waltz has this quality. It's almost like a smirk that he has. And he comes across as a cat, you know, batting a mouse around. The mouse knows he's going to die, but he doesn't know when. And the cat just seems to be playing with him. And that's the quality that he brought to this role. And frankly, that's an astute or astute observation. Um, I mean, or way of even describing it. Um, but I think more than anything, even when he's smiling, because most of the time on screen, he's kind of smiling at you. But you could just tell in his eyes that he's got this like hidden agenda. And it, it's kind of like you when you smile, Dad, um, that everybody just thinks you're up to something all the time. Well, have you, have anybody here seen How I Met Your Mother, where they're talking about the scene um, where Marshall is showing, you know, yes, the Sarah, captain's face of happy, wants to murder you. Okay, but That's... bringing in that other reference, it might be lost on the audience in general. Uh, but again, I get that. That's why I'm trying to put it that it's the difference between um, so much is emoted and you can tell from people's eyes that we don't often uh, take that as a cue. So just since we were all in agreement on best performance, do we have any um, just like quick um, special nominees? Uh, I'll just go, freaking Brad Pitt was uh, fucking hilarious through this whole thing. Um, just even from his over-the-top accent and yeah. uh, the way he's pronouncing things. I mean, he comes on screen and you owe me 100 Nazi scalps and doing his whole spiel, the whole thing keeps it up the entire time. And even when he's supposed to be playing Italian and describing <laughs> his name, I mean, that's just hilarious. <laughs> Him repeating the name in his bad Italian was probably the point I laughed most in the movie. Oh, uh, so anybody else have a special nominee on that one? Um... Now, I, uh, Melanie, um, and how do you pronounce her last name? It, it's Laurent. Laurent. I thought she she could have very well overplayed that part. 
And True. Did- I, I also think Daniel Brühl did a very good job in, you know, not um, doing that over, especially for how he has to sell that final sequence between the two, which I'll bring up later as um, part of the the string categories. But, um, you know, I, I, I would agree that that could have been very easily overstated, especially when she's facing off against Vault at that uh, um, dinner table or whatever with the strudel that was previously brought up. So... Uh, all right, just quickly moving on because for timing's sake, um, it, nominations for best scene. Going once, um, twice. The, the the tavern in the basement. Okay, why is that your vote? There's just so much. There's so much. There's so many facets to that. Um, the. Uh, the way everybody has to play off of each other and all of the different intrigue and the suspense, you just know that it's not going to go well. And the fact that the scene is set up by Brad Pitt repeatedly going, but it's still in a basement, you know, and repeating that over and over, you just know it's not going to go well. And you're waiting for it to not go well. And you're completely uh, thinking, And, of course, if at all Tarantino is ever able to make you feel sympathetic towards a Nazi, it's that the guy's just had a baby. And, of course, some of you is like, oh, he's the one who survives. Oh, good. And he'll get out of this, only to have Diane Krieger shoot him. (laughs) You know, it's just, it it was quintessential Tarantino. Go ahead, sir. I actually would say that the scene where um, the they light the um, films on fire towards the end, or just that moment before where he comes into the film room as she's changing the wheels, and uh, you're not really expecting for her to grab the gun to shoot him. You're kind of expecting her to just do anything in her power to get him out of there. I, I no, I I saw that one coming personally. I you know, I don't know about anybody else, but I saw her shooting him. I did not see him shooting her at the end. Um, yeah. But it, it, frankly, you both have nominated scenes outside of the two best performances of the movie. Uh, I think just by sheer standard of who gave the best performances, who jumps out, you have to put a scene with Waltz in it, just off the top. But then to have him and Pitt, and it's the only scene where they're facing off against each other, and it has some of the most memorable parts of it, at least for me. Best scene for me is is them negotiating vaults basically ending the war, Um, you know, to do a complete 180, you know, grab the guy in the dinner jacket, let's toss him out of the theater, we're going to bring him over to this SS headquarter, and everything's going to be kaput. Oh, never mind. No, let's blow up the theater and the war, and then I get a place in Nantucket of all places. You know, I don't know how that's not best scene. Well, I would even argue that if you're going to put a scene to, with the two of them together, that it would be the ending scene of where he is talking about um, how if you're willing to go against all of your government and blow up your entire uh, 
the entire Third Reich all on your own, basically, and do it all successfully, maybe you do deserve to be able to live out your days in happiness, but you still don't get to take off the uniform. Okay, but that has more to do with the plot line. I don't think the scene's not long enough for me to really be uh, all that different, and it's at best a topper on everything else. Well, I like the fact, though, that it turns so quickly is Waltz in it uh, um, in Brad Pitt. Waltz is so happy one minute. And then the next he's literally laying on the ground screaming because they're carving up his entire forehead. And you're watching the blood come out and the skin peel apart from the knife when he's using just an exhaustively large knife to do this. I, I think it does add comedic effect. And it is a scene that does change quickly and it shows Waltz's range, not necessarily as much as the shoe scene. Um, however, I think if you're putting pitting them against each other in a scene like that, I think it did have a lot of play. So uh, I'm just going to move quickly again for time's sake. Um, we'll move into the best lines um, area of things. So um, nominees include, uh, so you're a Jew hunter, a detective a damn good detective. Finding people is my specialty. So naturally, I work for the Nazis finding people, and yes, some of them were Jews. But Jew Hunter, it's just a name that stuck. Uh, I will try and do justice to Brad Pitt's um, accent in this. Each and every man under my command owes me 100 Nazi scalps, and I want my scalps. And all y'all will get me 100 Nazi scalps taken from the heads of 100 dead Nazis, or you will die trying. Uh, Other nominees include, my name is Shoshana Dreyfus, and this is the face of Jewish vengeance. Ooh, that's a bingo. Um, Uh, How about, um, uh, now that's my masterpiece. Yeah, I certainly could do that one. Uh, how about this one that's already been mentioned? You know, fighting in a basement offers a lot of difficulties. Number one being, you're fighting <laughs> in a <the> basement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I do think this, this line particularly gives a um, sum up of the whole... Uh, it's kind of gives that whole menacing aspect to Valtz's character, but in, um, expresses um, a different level of attitude towards the whole um, Jewish proponent of the movie, which is kind of the undertone, is in this particular film, the Jews getting the comeuppance on the Nazis. But what a tremendously hostile world that a rat must endure. Yet, not only does he survive, he thrives, because our little foe has an instinct for survival and preservation second to none. And that, Monsieur, is a Jew, or is what a Jew shares with a rat. Yeah. Um, and then the, finally, you know, you know something, Yudovich? I think this just might be my masterpiece, the final line of the movie. Um, another one that would be there. So, uh, of those, Dad, what would get your vote? I really, I, boy, I, I really liked the whole. Um, I thought it was hilarious with 
pit talking about fighting in a basement, I guess. That, <laughs> that to me was just the biggest part that was hilarious. And you just knew it was not going to go well. Yeah, I, I have to give that to you. I mean, frankly, that that's a great one. Um, the bingo one sticks out to me because I laughed at that one. Um, and just the comedic uh, uh, nature of him saying that we're going to scalp a bunch of Germans. Um, you know, that one, that one would also be on my list. Um, mine would definitely be fighting in a basement and, um, this is my masterpiece. Uh, I am a big fan of that scene. I think it ended the movie on a really solid note. Yeah. So uh, summing up, I guess, best line, because it's between all three of us, you know, fighting in a basement offers a lot of difficulties. Number one being you're fighting in a basement. <laughs> yeah. So um, indelible moment. Um, on the first viewing for me, it was always, and the ending, like I think both of you have kind of done, although you didn't even watch the uh, ending at the first time, Sarah, but um, that just kind of took me out of the movie was is that Hitler dies burning to death and being shot in a movie theater just randomly, and that's how the war ends. But think of how Sarah, that's not that is too. Well, of course, but you know that's that's different. So originally, that would have been the indelible moment to me. But um, I honestly think it's got to be uh, um, the whole conversation I, again. It goes back to that scene between the two of them where they're negotiating the whole <laughs> thing, and you know he just never really breaks his singular character in pit and neither does vaults and they're just playing off of each other and it's absolutely masterful yeah well you know and i thought it was interesting to have hitler laughing at the uh the shootings going on during the film he was finding that funny that you know the americans are getting shot and of course that's the way you would expect hitler to be so indelible moment for you sarah i think that's a really tough decision um i've got to say the moment in the theater where um hitler actually looks at goebbels and say i think this might be your best work yet and goebbels kind of you know puffing himself up and you know, all only to have that whole scene melt down within, you know, five minutes later where they're all dead and up in flames. Yeah, I I certainly can buy that. And both of yours is more um, trying to get at the heart of the uh, Nazi recognition in this film. And that's always going to be a difficult subject. But to be able to deliver with some level of uh, humor, um, realistically, there are not very many... Um, World War II films that you're going to be laughing at or um, cause this kind of a reaction. Um, it kind of had some underpinnings of that whole uh, Hogan's Heroes um, tone, I, yeah. I would say. So yeah. um, that uh, brings us to uh, stuff that didn't make sense to you. Number one, Right off the top, because it was the first thing that Sarah said while we were watching the movie together the other night in quarantine. Um, why does Brad Pitt have a giant scar across his neck? They never say anything about it. It's just there. 
and we're like he got his throat slit at some point but then he like healed up or something else and they never really explain why it's there it's just there it almost when i saw that it uh, and then i thought about the fact that this was supposed to be a a homage to the spaghetti westerns um was it fistful of dollars where clint eastwood is hung uh wrongly by a lynch mob and he's cut down and he goes through the whole movie with the big scar from the rope on his neck i don't remember because i've only seen fistful of dollars once i haven't seen it at all i don't think i've ever seen hang him high and he was not the one being hung he uh was not the one being hung in good the bad the ugly but no um it's either hang him high or um fistful of dollars one or the other clint eastwood's hung and the entire time he's wearing a scarf, and he would pull it down to show this this scar, and it was a very similar scar to what Brad Pitt had. And so I've often wondered if that was some sort of like, you know, hey, let's put the scar on his neck like Clint Eastwood had in this film. My first thought when seeing it though was that somebody had attempted to actually slit his throat, and you know he kind of seemed to show it off in a way that, you know, he's proud of it almost throughout the movie because you see it in multiple different scenes at different angles. So, other things. Now, notably, and I think we've discussed it on the podcast before, but certain directors always um, have their favorite actors or people they work with. Notably, Tarantino's worked with DiCaprio now a few different times. Um, He works with Kurt Russell a lot. Um... And uh, several others, Michael Madsen, um, Brad Pitt's been in several of his films at this point. But, um, and, you know, this goes back uh, a long time. Michael Caine's got to be in just about every um, uh, Christopher Nolan film. And, um, or um, Alfred Hitchcock had uh, either Cary Grant or James Stewart star in every one of his movies from uh, about the 1950 on you know, stuff of that nature. John Ford had either Jimmy Stewart or John Wayne in every frickin' film. But why the fuck did he have to shoehorn in Harvey Keitel and Samuel L. Jackson? <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson's randomly narrating this film when it calls for, like, no black people. And Harvey Keitel is the commanding officer over the phone, which makes a little bit more sense, but we have to shoehorn in these people so that we can give them work. I I forgot that Harvey Keitel was even in the film. He he didn't have a phone at the end. Ah. So, you know, it's just one of those things. It's like, why the fuck are you shoehorning these people in? Give them money. Give them work. Well, I know if they up. say anything on camera, they're given residual of some type. Oh, yeah, so. every time the film is shown. And, you know, I can tell you from having talked with a relative of somebody who was in uh, uh, De Niro's entourage, he makes about a hundred to $150,000 a year um, or more um, because he had a couple of lines just from one film in Goodfellas. Um, and because every time the thing is shown, he gets a residual check. And it's ironically, like, oh, that's our next movie. So, yes. but 
you're gonna have to get the name right by next week. It's good fellas with an good A. Yeah. All right, that's fine. But so, he's in like five or six different films of um De Niro's. And he's his driver when he's in New York. He drives him around. And in exchange for getting paid, De Niro makes sure he gets a spot in his uh, in every film he does and gets a line. Because if I know. you get a line, you get the check. Yeah. And that's how he pays them. So um, anybody else have anything else they want to do before we kind of jump into the scores? Yes. I've got to say, how ridiculous is it that they not only have one way, but three ways of trying to kill off everybody in the Nazi regime? So you've got the fire, you're shooting up the place, and there's explosives. Why do you need all three? What is really the for, point of that at for, that point? For the really same sure reason that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood ends with a flamethrower. <laughs> I mean, come on. You you really have to ask? It's a Tarantino movie. Everything, everything so... is supposed to be done to grandiose and comedic effect as a result of that. Of course that was going to be the thing. They aren't going to just, like, shoot Hitler and then leave the film. No, they're going to stand over the crowd and as everybody's trying to pile out, shoot everybody in the thing, and then wait for it to blow themselves up. But why would you even need to shoot when all of the doors are locked and every <laughs> there's no way out? Why not? I don't know. So... All right, uh, we'll cut over to the categories then um, with no objections. Uh, so Legacy, I mean, this movie's only a little over 10 years old. Um, I don't know if it's had a huge um, tail on it um, in the same way that like some of Tarantino's other films have had. Um, but I would say that most people probably put this in a top three, maybe four of his best movies. Um, so... I would, and he's widely considered to be one of the uh, great directors. Um, so whew, it's hard to give this one a, a great accuracy. Uh, I'm going to go with a seven. It's not great, Tarantino's best movie. It's close. Um, it's not even my favorite Tarantino movie, but it does get mentioned along with some of the other ones. Six. If you ask anybody, name a film from Quentin Tarantino, they're going to give you Pulp Fiction first, and then probably Kill Bill, and then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because it's the most recent. They may come up with The Hateful Eight. They may come up with or with um, uh, Django Unchained. And Glorious Bastards is going to be far down the list. It's There's just some aspect of it that it's not as memorable as um, others. And that's where the legacy comes in. It's a frankly, frankly, I disagree with that. Just having talked with people about Tarantino before, this pops up as probably their third one that they mentioned. You know, it's Pulp Fiction's going to be in there, but so is this. And then it may be a handful of where they mentioned Reservoir Dogs, or they mention uh, Django or Once Upon a Time as the third film. But by the third film, this is coming up. <clears throat> I've actually got to agree with you, Tom, that I would give this a seven. Um, more 
so on the fact that I've been saying for years how much I hated this movie the first time around and how many people are obscenely angry by the fact that I didn't like the movie is kind of my cue in determining that, you know, this has more of a legacy than people think. Frankly, I think people are warmer to this than they are Django. But um, just for me, as far as quality and uh, preference, uh, I think it took Tarantino three films to really perfect um, what he was trying to do with this alternate history type of thing, you know, where Django is kind of a hodgepodge to me and there were some great acting jobs. It didn't have the same feel as uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did to me, but um, the empowerment that's given and kind of the twist that he puts on it um, seems uh, to pay off the most in that movie. This one, again, you know, on first glance, all of us were taken out, well, two of us were taken out of the ending because of how it was presented. So I just think that there are better movies in the lexicon of Tarantino, but I do think this one holds a special place for Tarantino fans. Okay. So, um, impact or significance? Honestly, this is... Other than it gives kind of a tale to kind of his alternate history route where he moves more from the crime serial um, movies, the mob-associated uh, ones, um, or the heist type of film with Reservoir Dogs and then kind of a weird mob film with, um, uh, well, I, some people would comment poorly on me for saying that, but um, a mob-associated film, let's say, in kind of Pulp Fiction um, loosely, not in the same way as like The Godfather or Goodfellas, obviously, but and then like Kill Bill with assassins and some of these other things. This one moves more into the history route where he's spent most of the last part of his career, these kind of Western tropes um, and uh, how he kind of went about it. So that's the only redeeming thing. I don't think anybody really borrowed from this movie particularly other than himself and that it really gives any credence beyond that. So I'm going to probably go with three. Is that too low? Um, maybe four. Okay. I mean, I, I can be bumped up to a four I, without much of a problem. I just, I, we have to draw a bit of a line somewhere, but this doesn't have like, and again, I don't know. I will say it's more novel than it's impactful, uh, which is the next category that we'll jump into. So we'll give a four to the impact and the significance, but um, in the, the overall lexicon, but uh, I just, don't see this uh, being extremely impactful, yet this alternate history and his flair for it and giving this um, kind of an alternate ending and the whole um, empowerment of uh, marginalized historical groups, I have to say that that ranks a little bit higher on the novelty scale for me, at least probably between either a six or a seven. Any argument, discussion? <clears throat> well, it really is one of the first times you've seen them take a historical 
at, or situation and then play with it. So it was novel because I don't remember ever seeing a film where they just altered history. So what would you give it? I would say I would give it um, probably a seven and a half, eight, as far as novelty. Okay. So I'll let you be the deciding factor. We have somewhere between a six and an eight currently on the scale for novel. I would actually say for a seven or an eight as well. Um, I greatly appreciated the fact that in this movie, it's completely a different way of looking at, you know, history in the past. And I think they've done this with books, but this is really like the first time that you're seeing them completely mess with, you know, your pre-existing thoughts on the war and the way that they go about this right at the get-go it kind of just destroys what you think you're going into when you see the movie in that first scene which you've mentioned you like so much uh where they're talking about scalping well that's actually the second chapter is that yes the the opening scene is in the farmhouse anyway what is your vote on score i said a seven or an eight all right so then i guess we'll defer to the seven and a half um so classicness um frankly i i and i said this probably a few weeks ago on the other podcast but um most of these period pieces because they have kind of that um ability of the 2020 hindsight most things to me kind of aged well um again it's only an 11 year old movie that hasn't uh done too much um Two pieces uh, in particular that stand out to me as well. Um, so that last scene between um, Daniel Brühl and Melanie Laurent, um, where he comes up to the movie booth and he basically says, I've done all of this stuff for you, so you better start putting out you know, that old attitude, um, really does not play well in particular. Um, and that has to lead into my second point. Um, the fact that this movie led off with uh, being a Weinstein Film Company production, uh, um, given the fact that he was only sentenced to 23 years in prison for um, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Not even. Um, just, I, I think that's going to come up every time we have one of his films, whether it's uh, Shakespeare in Love or it's frickin' Goodwill Hunting. Um, anytime it says Miramax or Weinstein, but more specifically, the Weinstein Company, it's just not going to age well. But the but the irony of this is, is he does that, you know, you're going to put out for me, and she shoots him dead. That's true. That's the I'll, irony. I'll grant you that. I'll grant That's you that more than anything oh. else. But I just, yeah, it's, it's a weird... Um, a weird dichotomy other than that um i think this movie would probably hold up in another 10 uh maybe 20 years and really not have a problem outside of those two um spots just because again you know it's easier when you have a period piece because you've already got the hindsight kind of baked in yeah so anybody else have a problem with this going on probably for me as far as classicness it's probably an eight 
Yeah, I'll agree with that. All right. Um, now, rewatchability. This is not a film I'm going to sit down and digest um, more than maybe like once, twice a year if I did. But then again, this is only the second time I've ever seen it. I watched it. Yeah. I really liked it when I back at the time. I thought it was weird that how they, you know, uh, pigeonholed uh, the ending. But um, I never bothered to revisit it, even though I liked it. So for me, the rewatchability has got to be about average. I didn't mind rewatching it. Like, like I said, it was fun. And I might come back to this movie, but it's probably going to be a year or two in between viewings. This isn't something that I'm going to go to as like um, just Saturday afternoon viewing when I need something light or fluffy. Light and fluffy is not the words that I would ever use to describe Quentin Tarantino. And then yet again, I will probably revisit um, Reservoir Dogs or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood before I will revisit this one. Even though I enjoyed this film. I really did. I think rewatchability for, for me would or I've, like I said earlier, I've never been that big of a Tarantino fan. I mean, yes, I did enjoy the movie, but it's not something I'm going to be. But this is only one of two to... movies you've seen of his. Again, I keep telling you, and Dad hasn't seen it either, and we'll get around it at some point. But Reservoir Dogs <laughs> has to be on the list. It's my favorite of the Tarantinos before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out. So, but I'm gonna give it a five on the rewatchability. Three. Dad, what's your argument? Um, I can go five. I'd rewatch it. Right. It's not going to be on a regular basis. I just think it's kind of in that average thing where it's just not, you know, it's, it's not too heavy that uh, of a subject material where I don't feel like revisiting it, but it's not something that I'm going to come back to over and over again um, constantly because um, it's just a... Uh, film that's going to always come up for me. Yeah. Um, so audience score, just cutting into that quick, um, 88% uh, and score translate to 8.8 .8 points. And then um, I know we had a discussion last week on air, but come to a consensus. So we'll just default on the recognition category for right now. Uh, so this movie was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, uh, Best Original Screenplay. Um, and uh, so, and I don't know why, for whatever, um, I don't have the rest of them up. I thought I had this all up. Let me just click into the link here once. So... Um, Vaults won for um, Best Supporting Actor. Um, it was nominated for Screenplay, but it didn't win. Uh, Hurt Locker won that one. Um, It was nominated for Best Sound Mixing, but it didn't win. Best Sound Editing, it didn't <clears> win. Um, up for Best Cinematography, but that was the year of Avatar, so, like, of course it wasn't going to win. Uh, even though I thought, and I pointed this out and I paused it, backed it up, 
there were a couple of shots in here where I just loved some of the cinematography for how it just kind of added to the atmosphere of the film. I mean, there was one specific instance where um, it was cutting uh, between the German, basically giving up the position of the other Germans in that um, second chapter to Brad Pitt after uh, the whole baseball bat incident. And um, so, but uh, it was also nominated for film editing. So this only won um, one award, but it got, uh, so let's see here, Screenplay, um, supporting actor. It didn't have anybody else up that year for um, acting or anything else. Um, best director. So uh, you get an additional four points for that. Best picture. Um, so seven plus the technical awards. Um, nine and. Four, so 13 total for the recognition, and then just my quick math, so 11, um, and 13, 24, 37, and 52, 53.3 is the total. So, um, overall, let me just look that up once here. Um, now, that does take us to our other discussion. Um, Hurt Locker won that year against Avatar, The Blind Side, District 9, uh, and Education, which I don't even remember. Um, Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire, uh, A Serious Man, Up and Up in the Air. Um, should this have won Best Picture? Yeah. No. I don't think so either. I mean, I, I enjoyed this film, but I think everybody was basically assuming it was going to be Avatar, and I'm not even sure that in hindsight that um, the Hurt Locker... I mean... I think Avatar was... I thought they got it right, right that year in in the moment, but I, I don't know. I still agree with their ruling that the Hurt Locker was the best. I think Avatar was highly overrated. So I So uh other than that uh any other last thoughts I guess? Well, in my research on the film, I did note that the original working title of this film was Once Upon a Time in Paris. Huh. Interesting. So he uh, wrote it and shelved it and then did the two Kill Bills and uh, another film I was unfamiliar with um, because he couldn't figure out an ending. Okay, makes sense. So it's kind of a difficult movie to kind of end. But so um all right. Um with that uh up for uh debate. Uh final 
Thought, uh, does anybody think this is going to be in the top 100 when we're all said and done? No. Probably not, uh, just for me. Um, I think there are better Tarantino films. Again, this is a really good film, but um, overall I think there are um, other ones that will eventually be ahead of it. So um, right now as it stands, um, the current rankings are Raiders of the Lost Ark, number one, Rocky, number two, Inglorious Bastards, number three, North by Northwest, and fourth. Um, the last three are much closer. Uh, Raiders is um, by far way ahead of uh, all of those at the moment. So um, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we're going to be covering Goodfellas next week, um, Martin Scorsese's um, seminal um, uh, mob film, but uh, we will see you then. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. After all, tomorrow is another day. As always, please subscribe, rate, and comment on the show from wherever you get your podcasts. It will help everyone else find the show and share in the fun. If you would like to suggest a movie we should review or potentially guest star on one of the episodes, please follow either Dana or I on Twitter uh, at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan.